So I'll stand together at this time as we reverence the reading of God's Word. going to look in Isaiah chapter 43, a message I call Worshiping the God Who Forgets. Worshiping the God Who Forgets. Isaiah 43, 22. But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings, neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. Thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices. But thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgression for mine own sake. And will not remember thy sins. May God bless the reading of his word tonight as my prayer. You may be seated. Great passage tonight calling us to worship the God who forgets. The God who forgets. And um, uh, if you might take uh, exception to that. uh, It is directly in our text. God says, I will not remember thy sins sins. I will not. God chooses to forget them. Now, if it were a matter of our remembering or forgetfulness, if it was a matter of our memory, it certainly would not really be worthy of a sermonic consideration. I wouldn't preach a whole sermon about our memory. Our memories are amazing, though I can only speak for myself. I have a lot of trouble to remembering what I want to remember and forgetting what I need to forget. I sometimes get those crossed up and I remember what I really would long to forget and I forget what I really need to remember. I also sympathize with the statement I heard a man make some years ago. He said, my forgetter is working better than anything else I got. I I understand that too. I do. In fact, our memory is so fickle that I find myself sometimes getting up from the couch to go into another room only to find myself standing in the middle of that room looking around. Why? Because I forgot what I went in there for. I knew a minute ago. Some of you young ones are looking at me funny. Hey, you'll be there with the rest of us before long. Tonight, though, we consider that amazing quality of our omnipotent, almighty, our omniscient, all-knowing God to choose to forget so that he will not remember our sins. Now, as is so often the case, we could consider that and pull that passage out of its context and and just kind of go wherever we want to. But tonight, we're going to look at it within the context of what is happening here. Because as we often see then in the prophets, but really we see it all over the scriptures, a lot of times God's great promises to us begin with a rebuke for us. And it is so in this passage, as God rebukes them first then for their superficial service, their sins. He rebukes them for their sins. 
But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. You see, I told you this morning, the people are tired. They're weary with the service of God. You're weary of me, O Israel. You've not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I've not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Uh, the people were tired, weary in their service of God. And God was tired of their service of him. It wasn't that the people, you see, were not bringing their offerings per se. They were. It wasn't that they were not showing up for their seasons of worship as God had prescribed. They were. The problem was that these things had become a burden to them, a wearisome thing to them. And by bringing these things to God then, when in fact they were a burden to him, or a burden to them, uh, God was not pleased. God was not pleased. And so he says, uh, you know, you're coming before God, but, but you're not there for me. I'm not pleased with what you're doing. You're, you're serving, but you're not serving me. You're, you're honoring someone, but you're not honoring me. Perhaps they had got to the place where they were giving only because they hoped to secure God's blessings for them. And they were giving. Uh, they, and, and that can happen to us as well. If we serve in order to honor ourselves, then we'll grow weary of our service. If we worship because we want it to make us feel better or because we like the way worship feels, it feels good. But we'll grow weary of it. It is a common perspective of human nature that what thrills us today will bore us tomorrow. And that is true even of the things that we might do uh, and put God's name on it. We're worshiping God. But if we're worshiping God because of the way it feels, then God sees that. It goes back to that motive that we talked to about this morning. And what happens when we are going through this is that our service becomes wearisome to us and it's wearisome to God. There's another problem because God said, I've not caused you to serve by grain offerings. I have not wearied you with incense. So that if our service of God is a burden, it's not God's fault. It's not what he said. I, I've not put this burden on you. I did not put this there for it to be a burden for you to bear. We know 2 Corinthians 9 and 7, where Paul said concerning giving, Every man as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or necessity. For God loveth a, what? A cheerful giver. Not when it's a burden, but when we want to. You see, God, God has not saved us and called us with a holy calling to put us under some obligatory system where we have to give or we have to serve. And 
when we feel that way, it quickly becomes a burden to us. Yes, there is a sense in which we serve God because we should. And we serve Him because it is right. We honor Him because we should. We honor Him because it's right. We give to Him because we should. And we give because it's right. We worship Him because we should. And we worship Him because we right. But because it's right. But it goes beyond that. Because we give to Him, we serve Him because we love Him. And we long then to honor in Him. We delight in it. So that it doesn't become a drudgery. I like what the psalmist said. I've quoted this passage a whole bunch over the course of my life in ministry. I was glad, the psalmist said in Psalm 122 verse 1. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go unto the house of the Lord. If you're getting up on Sunday morning and saying, oh man, it's Sunday again. You got a problem. And God says it right here in this passage. I didn't do that to you. It is not my fault. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go unto the house of the Lord. Psalm 84 and 2, my soul, the psalmist says, longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home. Now, uh, the psalmist is thinking about how he longs for God and how he longs for the, for the tabernacle of worship to be in the house of the Lord so he can worship him. And immediately his mind goes, I love this passage. My mother loved this passage. She loved birds. And his mind then went to what he had seen often there in the tabernacle and in the temple courtyard as he would see those birds that had built their nest around the altars. I tell you what, every time I walk outside of my front door and see those swallows uh, flittering around, dive bombing my head, I'm tempted to grab a stick and start swatting at them. I might have done that a time or two, but if never hit one, don't turn me in. Can't say I hadn't tried. Those swallows, those sparrows. Oh, how blessed they are, the psalmist said. She has made a nest for herself where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts. Found himself envying the sparrows and the swallows. They got to live in the house of God. So that their flight and their songs would be mingled with the blessed songs of the saints of Zion. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Psalm 84. You see, this is how we are when we delight in the service of God. It's not a drudgery to us. We delight in it. We delight in it. Now, I don't mean to propose tonight that having a habit of worshiping is necessarily a bad thing. I'm not suggesting that at all. In Luke 4, the Bible tells us the story about when Jesus was visiting in his hometown of Nazareth where he had been raised up. And Dr. Luke said, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. As his custom was. 
See, Jesus had been raised up in that town, and he had been raised up going to synagogue to worship in that town. That was his custom. On the Sabbath day, what did they do? They went to the synagogue. It was a custom. It was a habit. Now, there's no way you could look at Jesus' custom or habit of worship and say, well, that was a bad thing. No, it wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't a bad thing because it was a lot more than just a habit. Yes, it was a habit. Yes, it was a custom. But it was more than that. There's a country music song and a line that's in it that says, It don't matter if you don't believe. Come Sunday morning, you best be there in the front row like you're supposed to. It don't matter if you don't believe. Be there just because you're supposed to. Well, you know what? Supposed to will only get you so far. And keeping the rules because we're supposed to is no better on this side of Calvary, no easier on this side of Calvary than it was on the other side. Uh, God looked at them. And they were showing up. They were worshiping him. They were offering their offerings. They were going through all of their religious ritual. They were giving their gifts. If you ask them, they would say, oh, we're giving this to God. But God says, no. It's not for me. And because... Their wanting to do it had been replaced by the supposed to. God says, it's not for me. And it was because of that then that they were weary of it. You see, just making the offerings and serving just to check a box and make us feel better about life and living in general, that's, it gets wearisome to us in a hurry. So this is a problem then that this passage is set in. A problem where God was rebuking them because of their superficial worship, because of their obligatory worship, because the worship of him had become a burden and they continued to do it even though they didn't want to. And it was a burden to them and it was a burden to God because it hung like a cloud on everything they did. Their sinfulness then, their Sinful state before God hung over everything they did. You're weary of me, God says. I'm weary of your iniquities. Of you burdening everything you're doing with this bad, bad heart. Thank God, not only do we have a problem, (laughs) but we have a solution. God identifies the problem, but he proposes the solution. And the solution should not be a surprise to us. It is the satisfying Savior. So when God rebuked them for their superficial worship, he also pointed them to the solution. There is a satisfying Savior. He points that out in Isaiah 43, 11 with that statement that emphasizes what he's about to say. I, even I. That is, he, he, he declares this as an oath. 
It's what the writer was speaking of when he spoke of how that God, when he could swear by none greater, he swear by himself. I, even I. It is a, a statement of, of God uh, making an oath. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Aren't you glad that our God is in the saving business? Aren't you glad? We worship the God who is our Savior. We probably could not imagine uh, what a thrill that was uh, without setting it into context of the ancient peoples and even peoples today who worship other gods, false gods. Their gods are anything but a savior to them. In fact, their gods are their greatest threats to them. All kinds of atrocities, even the murdering of other people is done in the name of their God. Our God is a saving God. Our, I am the Lord. I, even I, am the Lord. And beside me, there is no Savior. So right up front, we can see that God calls them to reflect on the fact. When they begin to get weary of his worship, just remember who you're worshiping. You're worshiping the God that saves you. Helps us to change our perspective a little bit when we pause and reflect on what God has done for us when he saved us. But then there's more. I, even I, second time he uses that expression in the same passage, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not Remember your sins. So that while God could rebuke them and remind them that there was nothing about their grudging service that pleases God or blesses us. It's still that way today. If we are begrudging our service of God, if our service of God becomes a weariness to us, then it doesn't please God and it doesn't bless us. That's the bottom line. And God told them that. This was their sin. This was their iniquity. This was what was wearying them and burdening them down. And God then tells them that this is a problem that has to be considered. And when we consider it, we'll see that there is a cure. This statement, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins, just like the first one in verse 11. Both of these statements simply burst into the text without warning. Uh, there was nothing in there to say that God was about to shift things. He, you know, here he is. Here, this is bad. You're bad. You're bad. You're bad. You're messing up. You're messing up. You're messing up. Boom. But I don't remember your transgressions, and I'll blot them out. Oh, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. Boom, but I am your Savior. It just, without any kind of warning, without any kind of transition, the fact is, it isn't needed. There is no situation in our life tonight, not one now, Never will be one we'll face in the future. You listen, there's not a situation in our life now, nor will we face one in the future, in which the consideration of our great Savior and our great salvation is inappropriate. Never be a situation, not now in the future, when it would be out of place for us to consider our Redeemer, our Savior, 
our salvation and God's forgiveness. No matter what else is going on, no matter what else is happening, no matter what else is entering into our life, we can always stop. We can pause. We can interrupt whatever is going on. Uh, next time you're having one of those mouthing sessions with your kids, you know, just stop for a minute and think, you know, Jesus saved me. I won't suggest tonight that any of your spouses, any of you spouses, married couples tonight, ever have an argument or anything. I wouldn't suggest that. But if you ever did happen to have an argument, you know, you can stop right in the middle of that thing and just pause and think, man, I've got a great Savior. If your spouse is saved, you can say, you know, he or she does too. It helps us a lot when we remember that the same Jesus that saved me has saved this other person as well. It's not a situation where we can ever think. So here was God. He was rebuking them, and then without introduction or without explanation, he burst on the scene with this great statement. You see, our forgiveness was not conditioned on some performance. It was not conditioned on some work that we were doing. God did not require from us a river of blood to be shed or an ocean of anointing oil to be bought and purchased and brought in. No. God is our Savior and God blots out our transgressions and He will not remember our sins for His own sake. It's right there in verse 25. He does it because of who He is. He does it on the basis of our faith. It is our receiving of Him as our Savior that brings us to forgiveness and justification. And when it comes to our uh, relationship with God, we do not face the accumulated weight of all our past failures or neglects. You know, it's tough to deal with people who are constantly reminding us of all the failures that we made. Oh, I remember. I remember when you did this, and I remember when you did that. Oh, I tell you, that just creates hopelessness in us when people are bringing up constantly all of these things from our past. Aren't you glad God's not going to do that to us? I mean, God knows all the things that nobody else knows but us and Him. And yet he would say to us, I will blot out all of your transgressions, not some, all. And I will remember, I'll remember them no more. Great example of that in the prodigal son in Luke's gospel, he returned to the father with the intent of becoming a servant. But he was instead restored in full to his former status. Uh, that's the God who does not remember our sins. That was, of course, predicated by the prodigal son's repentance and return. He was not going to be restored to his position while living in the far country. No, that wasn't going to happen. But when he came back to the father, the father restored him. You see, no indication in that entire passage that the, the father would spend the rest of his life then. Okay, now that I've got you back, I'm going to gripe at you forever and constantly spend every day reminding you of everything you ever did that was wrong. I don't see the father saying, you know, when the 
prodigal son comes back. I try to imagine what it would be like. Well, you know, Dad, I, I, I need a new car. Well, if you hadn't wasted all that money, we could have one. You could have whatever you wanted. Uh, we, don't, we don't see that kind of thing playing out at all. I can imagine that, but it doesn't really fit with the text. God, the Father, put the ring on his finger, the robe on his back, sent him out then to the with the time of the uh, fatted calf, the great feast and festival, so that everyone would see that he had been fully received and fully restored. How is it then that a holy and just God can so carefully review our sins, reveal our hearts, but at the same time offer such full and free forgiveness? Well, if you keep reading in the book of Isaiah, you'll see how God does that. Isaiah 53 and 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity. Of us all. You see, this blotting out of our transgressions, this forgiveness of our sins, so that God would remember them against us no more, that came at a great price. The blood of Jesus Christ. When we get down to the heart of the problem, then, when uh, our weariness, uh, when we've allowed our worship to become a weariness to us, Bottom line is, we've forgotten somehow God's incredible forgiveness and the costly price that was paid for it. This didn't go away. You see, all the way over in the book of Revelation, God is still bringing this up to his people. Jesus would talk to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first, first works, or else I will come to you quickly. And remove your lampstand from its place. Repent and remember. That's what Jesus put before the church at Ephesus. God proposed a threefold response in Isaiah 43. There's remember again. Put me in remembrance. Verse 26. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted or justified. Remember, remember. The same thing he told the church at Ephesus. You remember. You remember. Then he says, you contend. Bring it to me. It's the same essential thing he said in God said in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 famously when he said, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they be red like crimson, or though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Come now and let us reason together. About what? About your sins. See, at some point in time, we need to come to God if we have grown weariness of it. God knows it. We know it. You say, well, I'm just tired. And God says, I'm tired too. 
I'm tired. God says, I'm tired of you being tired. Let's talk about this thing. What's wrong? You need to remember your Savior. You need to remember that I'm the God who forgets. State your case if you've got one. We all do. But I don't think there'd be a person in this building tonight or even one watching from home who would say, yeah, I'm going to state my case before God. I'm going to plead my righteousness. (laughs) I'm going to say to God, I deserve better. I don't think we'd do that. You see, when we state our case before God, what are we going to say? Oh, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on me, oh God. Oh, I need your grace. That's what Psalm 51, 17 tells us. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, thou wilt not despise. Remember, contend, let's talk about this. You say, you're tired of serving me. Well, I'm tired of you being tired. So state your case. Call on me for mercy. Remember what I've done for you. Reflect on my goodness and my mercy to you. You see, there's nothing like carrying our sins around while we're trying to worship to weary us and weary God. And all the while, God's invitation stands right there before us. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we're tired... And God says, I'm tired of you being tired. This is not something we need to lag around, carry around for months and years, going through the motions. No. We need to get it right. And God tells us how. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. I know what I need. I, I remember. I remember. Oh, I'm down here in the hog pen eating slop. But I remember. I remember my father's house. I remember his servants were well fed and well taken care of. Oh, I've messed up so bad, God. Oh, Father, I, I don't deserve to be your son. I, I, I just want to serve you. I, just make me one of your hired hands, God. Oh, Father, just make me one of your hired hands. (laughs) Don't you love that story that the Father saw him coming from way off? (laughs) Saw him coming from afar off, from a long ways, way, way off. He, He saw him coming, and he ran to meet him. And I'll tell you tonight... If we're tired and God's tired of us being tired and we turn back to him, God will meet us on the way. 
He'll meet you tonight if you'll step out. Make that move to him.